certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. The Claremont serial killer trial today came to a dramatic end, with the defence case over in a matter of minutes and Bradley Edwards confirming he would not take the stand. It's day 85 of Claremont in Conversation and what a day it has been uh, with a bombshell moment in which the accused is also told to brace himself. We've got a full deck today, Natalie Bonjolo, Tim Clark, Alison Fan, and Damien Cripps with you. Okay, so I think let's start at the start. Tim, it was a packed courtroom again mm. and today you had people lined up outside the door mm. in the rain busting to get in. Yeah, um, apparently there was people outside the door before the court had even opened before nine o'clock. Obviously very keen again to see what Mr Edwards had to say for himself in in his own words. Um, I think some of them were disappointed yesterday because they actually maybe had misunderstood and thought Mr Edwards was actually going to give evidence himself. But that wasn't the case. Um, that was, as you said off the top, Matt, that was confirmed today that he won't be um, because he was given the chance and and declined as his is his right but uh, yeah it was um, it was breakneck stuff today there was all sorts going on so we'll try and get through it all yeah there were twists and turns that really you know nobody saw coming so Ali let's start with uh, the video picked up from yesterday and this really started with questions to Mr Edwards about his hobbies and and his personal life again Absolutely. And again, he was just in this sort of very chatty conversational mood or response to do with his hobbies and what happened and his sports and so forth. And as we've said, it was only when the questions got more direct to the actual uh, Claremont area showing photographs and so forth that he gave the one word answers. But again, his, his whole demeanour, I find completely puzzling. Um, it's interesting, yesterday, Damien, Tim and Ellie were talking about um, Mr Edwards and how he was quite open when he was asked about these personal questions and, and Tim was talking about, you know, these really private, intimate questions. But, of course, when the questioning um, was about the accusations, he was quite closed and quite sure. I mean, I guess, is that to be expected? I think, that in those situations where a person's giving an interview, it doesn't matter how much a police officer will explain to a person or how many times they've been told by a lawyer, how many times they might have seen something on TV. The, the situation can be quite overwhelming. I think when someone's sitting there, so it's it's quite difficult to draw the connection between what you might say about your personal life and how that may affect the way a jury or a judge might view you. I mean, if you can imagine you're sitting there in the interview room being interviewed, and um, I think as has been discussed, um, as was discussed yesterday, the interviewing techniques of the police are well-versed. I mean, they, they, they know what they want to achieve and, and they do it quite often, so they know how to get there. So one of the things you'll find with when personal questions are asked, people quite generally speaking, people enjoy talking about themselves. So people will... You know, what suburb are you from? Oh, right now I live in you know, Morley. Oh, where did your parents come from? And those kind of questions can really actually open up a person to just having a feeling that the the, the interviewers are just generally having a conversation with them. Um, and it's it, it's a technique that 
really, in my experience, gets people, catches people out all the time because, as I think Tim mentioned yesterday, it opens the conversation. Um, and so, in my experience, and I think it's generally speaking, it, it is it, it is something that the police can achieve is get a personal conversation going with a person who's doing an interview. Okay, so Tim, uh, 13 hours since Bradley Edwards has been in custody and Detective Maripodi takes a, a break and returns to the interview and he tells Mr Edwards to brace himself. Can you talk to us about this and, and what you were seeing in the video? Yeah. So we talked yesterday and Damien can obviously talk to it a bit more about the, the police officers have got to be able to be seen, to be doing everything they can to, to make the suspects or the uh, comfortable in in inverted commas by offering him breaks offering him sustenance offering him um you know any anything they can um to show that they they are doing their duty um to 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 care for i suppose an accused person but on the other hand they are there to do a job and that is to ask him questions about a very well uh, the most serious crime that you could possibly be um accused of and so we saw in the video a couple of breaks taken, um, but they were uh, they, they were of utility to the police as well because as we found out then when we came back from the breaks, they were waiting for the results of this DNA test, this physical buckle swab DNA test that had been taken from Mr Edwards during the interview. And obviously we know more about DNA than probably anyone in Perth now. That, that That's not just a, a, a vending machine job. You, that, that takes some time, but it didn't take that long. Um, as you said, Nat, around about 12 or, or 13 hours um, over the course of the interview, and the, the swab has only taken a couple of hours in. Um, but when they came back, um, it, it really did appear to me that um, Detective Maripodi took on a little bit of a tougher edge after that break, because they had the results that they were waiting for and they were the results that they wanted, in that the buckle swab that Mr Edwards had provided was also a match to the DNA from Kira, the DNA from um, Karakata and the DNA from Huntingdale. And so you can see and certainly hear Detective Maripodi, um, he's armed now with this last link in the chain that he can then go to Mr Edwards and that is what he says brace yourself Bradley because we have got some results back and those results he told Mr Edwards in the interview were a match to all three and again Mr Edwards's immediate response is well that's impossible I don't know how that can be how can that be um, was his an, a, a immediate response um, and then it is put to him again and again and in various ways, um, personal and um, uh, psychological, I suppose, or emotional, and um, from an intelligence point of view in terms of the police officers, well, you're not, you've, we've talked about your education, Bradley, you remember that back in the, earlier in the interview, we know you're not a dumb man or you, you're no dummy, um, so you must understand what this means, and, and, and again, we see Mr Edwards struggling to come to terms with, with what he is being accused of. And in, when you're watching that video, Ali, is he showing emotion at this point? Absolutely. That was the first time he actually showed any uh, emotion. He put his hand up to his head and rubbed his forehead and then he put his head down. He was silent for a good few seconds and then you could hear him like coughing or sighing and uh, then he looked up 
And then they said, do you understand what we're talking about? And he said, yes, I do understand. And he's saying, yes, it is your DNA. He said, yes, I understand that, but it wasn't me. But that was the only time that he actually stopped talking and put his head down and rubbed his face with his hand. And is it uh, clear that he does understand the ramifications of what is being put to him because they then go on uh, to say, well, your DNA has been matched to the DNA obtained from a victim of this rape. Mm. And that's when um, the police confront Mr Edwards um, with physical... I don't want to say props because they're not props. There was there, there was a photo of the kimono. There was um, the photo... Um, of the victim of the, victim, mm. uh, of the bedroom uh, in mm. Huntingdale and then tellingly there was a photo of Kira Glennon that was placed before Mr Edwards and he was very then starkly confronted with what the police were accusing him of rape and murder and and uh, Detective Maripodi uh, spelled out really in particularly when describing what had happened to Kira 14th of March abducted from Claremont dumped in Eglinton, murdered, what have you got to say for yourself and why would your DNA be on her? Um, and Mr Edwards, again, he really struggled to um, elucidate uh, what was, was, was being put to him, really. Um, I don't know. Um, how can that be? Uh, I, I, I really don't know what to say to you. Um, and then uh, the police used another tactic, which I'm hoping Damien might elucidate on, in that they then brought Mr Edwards's personal life into the questioning, in particular by saying to him, your daughter tells us that honesty is your biggest or most valuable virtue. That's what you, that, that's what you, um, you pride yourself on. So prove her right. Tell us what happened, Bradley. Which again was a, was was an interesting way of asking a very similar question, I suppose, but coming in coming at it from a different angle, I suppose, to try and get a different response, emotional um, or verbal. Is that something that you've seen in terms of how a police uh, interview would go, Damien? Absolutely, I think. And if you think about it logically, um, what the police are trying to do is get answers to questions they have. And we always, well, I know from my side of the fence, we always think to ourselves, oh, the police are just trying to secure the conviction. But it's not actually the case. They're just trying to get answers. So they're just trying to find out what they can find out. And so by bringing in your daughter, uh, anyone who's a parent will understand that that's tapping at the very heartstrings of your whole existence, the soul of who you are. So we're, giving, we're going to give this person the opportunity to consider who he is as a father and that that person, his daughter, considers that he's an honest person. Now, if you didn't do it, if you were innocent of the crime, you would be okay when that was said to you. You would sit there and go, "Well," and, and I mean, from what I can, from what I understand, Mr. Ed, Edwards' Edwards' response to that was in line with, consistent with him being um, innocent. Mm. Um, from what I understand, and obviously. I wasn't there. But the, the point is that if you're just trying to provide someone with an opportunity, and I'm being very kind by using the word opportunity, if the police are just trying to provide the most open opportunity for a person to admit something they might have done, then it's a tactic that 
you, people would understand would work to bring up your family, to bring up your kids. You know, like you, you know, what about your kids? Your kids tell us that you're a really honest person, and that that really is going to encourage someone to be as honest as they can. Um, and and it's a it's a very effective tactic, as anyone who's a parent would understand. Yeah. Well, um, actually, in his response, Bradley Edwards kept kept saying, "I am being honest." And yes, I do accept responsibility for things that I've done, but I haven't done this. So much so that it sort of, the detectives then said, well, you are an educator, you did have an education, you went up to year 12, you've done an apprenticeship, because it was like um, Edwards was in another dimension uh, (laughs) with his replies. And I think that prompted the police to say, well, you do understand, which they did repeatedly say, you do understand what you're being asked, you do understand what all of this means. And he responded, Yes, I don't know, but I don't know about any of this stuff. Um, even to do with the, with the DNA, they explicitly explain what the DNA was. That unless you've got an identical twin, you're the only person in the world that this matches. Uh, they explained about the, the, the sperm that was left on the victim. He understood that, but uh, he kept saying, I didn't do it. So he never wavered in, in mm. as far as that went. Tim, you mentioned that um, Detective Maripodi shows Bradley Edwards the photos and one of the photos is of Kira Glennon. What does he ask him about that photo when he shows it to him? Well, as I say, it was very clear what the allegation was by this time. Um, and as the photo is, is, is slid over the table, uh, he said, this is this is Kira Glennon and, and, and basically, again, confronts him with another level of interrogation, I suppose, um, asking him to look at the, the picture of, of, of this young woman who was so brutally killed. Um, Does he say, he ask her, do you know who she is? Mm, yeah, yes, yes. Uh, you know, have, have, you, have you met her? Have you seen her? Do you know who she is? Again, a, a roundabout way of trying to get to what they hoped, I suppose, Mr. Edwards would, would tell them or say or explain. Um, but once again, once once he appeared to have acknowledged that, um, he didn't give much away. It was, I, I suppose, a, um, a, a tactic or a, um, a response that the police um, had been become used to yeah. over those 12 hours because that was his, his response to um, to many, many of their questions. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious also, Ali, about, um, you know, Mr Edwards is in the dock today. He's watching this videotape. What's his reaction to what, he, what he's watching today? Totally bland, just as he's been all along. And even his tone of voice in the actual interview with the police was, I'm trying to help you. I wish I could help. I just don't know what you're talking about. Um, you know, I would try to do everything to help you. And today he just looked, looked on as he's listening to this. There's no reaction at all. There, there hasn't been very much. At one stage he handed some notes to his lawyer, but that was during a break. But apart from that, there's been uh, no change in his attitude the whole six, seven months that we've been sitting there. Yeah. Completely bland. Like he's, I've said, like he's in another world to me. Tim, the other photo that he's shown is of the kimono, mm-hmm. which is left behind at the Huntingdale attack in 88. Mm-hmm. Um, what does Detective Maripodi ask him about this kimono and what are his responses to that? Yeah, well, once again, he's directly questioned, this is a kimono that was found at that scene. How do you worn it? Can you explain how your DNA can be on all, all over it, not just in one part of it, but all over it? 
Um, have you seen it before? Um, and again, uh, no, it's not mine. I've never seen it. Why would I wear it? Um, just flat denials when when the when the allegations are put so directly, but then when when the when they're put in a different way, they're a slightly different answer, but the tenet of the answer is the same. To all the allegations at this stage, it wasn't me. I don't know. I wish I could help you, but I can't. Yeah. Damien, this is, um, you know, a part of this case that has absolutely fascinated people because, as we discussed yesterday, we know that this is an absolute lie and that Mr Edwards has later pleaded guilty um, to you know, these, the Huntingdale and the Karakata attacks on the eve of the trial. What do you make of it and what people will make of that? Oh, it, le- it, leaves, it, it leaves me a bit speechless. Now, I, I, every time I think about it, uh, on a personal level, I am I'm a little lost in, in, in where my thinking could, could or should go. Um, and, and considering, you know, I'm... I'm likely to be more forgiving of an accused person than the average person is, most people wouldn't feel the way that I do. I understand that. Legally speaking, um, the the biggest issue that I think um, that that presents for the accused in this case is, and it's not rocket science, it's his credibility. Mm. Um, You know, so, I mean, he hasn't given any evidence, so his credibility in regards of him giving evidence is not going to come into question, but he has done a record of interview in, in um, you know, where he's, uh, I mean, ultimately denied any um, any knowledge or anything to do with any of these um, three charges that he's that, that are brought before him at the moment, and and the, the question is, what weight will will the judge give to lies that he's seen him tell in the interview against what he's asking? The judiciary to consider as truth. Yeah. So, so if you think about the context of the the interview, um, Ali and Tim, did, did am I understanding that during the course of that interview he was asked about the Karakata and the Hunting Tail offences? Mm. He was, yes. And, and he denied both of those. Yes, and just exactly the same flat tone that he denied everything else. No surprise, well, no indignation, nothing, just bland. Right. So, the, so obviously the the issue. For I mean, the issue for any person in that situation is, uh, to some extent, they've given up a bit of their credibility. And I mean, you know, some people will say they've given up all their credibility, but I, I'm not of that view. I think that it's not impossible um, for someone to be untruthful about one thing and and be truthful about another. But obviously, I understand that that the, the case will be that you eat into your credibility as soon as you start to be anything but honest and completely honest. So. I think it's quite logical that people people will be able to see that that's the issue that arises, you know, from this inter- interview in, in terms of what the judiciary can take from it and how they use it. Yeah. And uh, Ali and Tim, you're sitting here watching this interview and you're watching the uh, answers to these questions and the emphatic denials and I have no idea how that happened, I have nothing to do with it. And, of course, you already know the answers are lies. Is it almost surreal while you're sitting watching this play out? Well, I've said all along, it's like something from a movie. I kept expecting him 
to talk about himself in the third person maybe because his, his denials weren't even that emphatic. They were just, no, I don't know, no, I wish I could help you. They weren't like sort of an angry denial or, or an upset denial in that way. And as I said, it was almost a simplistic way he was answering. I was trying to discern whether there was, you could tell whether there was any difference in the way he was making those denials in terms of intonation, body language, whether his voice cracked or went up or down or stayed more level when he was talking about the murders. And I've got to say, I couldn't discern any difference. The The, the tone and of of the interview from Mr. Edwards was pretty, um, pretty consistent throughout the whole thing. Um, he got tired at points, obviously. His voice got a bit croaky. He got a little bit emotional at some points. His, his voice was raised slightly. But it, the, overall, you would say he was pretty consistent. Which So that was the one thing I was um, looking for. Mm. The other thing I was looking for today was I was trying to gauge the two young women that they that, that mm. did attack. And I, yeah. I was trying to, 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 to watch their reaction as they were listening to Mr. Edwards deny any knowledge of, of the attacks against them at all. And again, to their credit, they've been so... Every, all the families involved, um, and I'll, I'll include Mr. Edwards' parents in that as well, everyone's been, just conducted Very themselves stoic. with mm. such dignity and stoicism mm. and calm mm. in the face of what must have been an absolutely horrendous... Um, traumatic and very, very taxing um, six months or so. Yeah, I mean, and you're right because, you know, we do see with court cases that tempers flare Mm. and emotions boil over and we see sometimes some really terrible scenes Mm. outside courtrooms and given the enormity of this trial, we've seen none of that. No, quite the the opposite actually. Um, there's been uh, since Christmas or since or towards the end as the, the case has been coming to towards its end uh, um, you you can sort of feel the weight lifting off everyone I think mm-hmm. a little bit um, um, particularly police prosecutors lawyers um, court staff I, I, I feel everyone has, has, has sort of really started to think well this we've 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 got through it, um, um, and now you know we we are right at the end of what has been an absolute marathon. Yeah. So then the video comes to an end, and this is around eleven thirty that night, the day of the arrest. So we're now talking some sixteen hours since he's been taken into custody, and at this point the charges are read out to him. What's his reaction to that? He appeared to break a little bit, I have to say, I think. Um, the, so the process is that Detective Maripodi explains to Mr Edwards, I'm going to just go and consult with the senior officer because I have to before mm. I actually formally prefer these charges against you. And then he listed all the charges that were going to pre- be preferred against him and they were all of them apart from the murder of Sarah. That, didn't, that charge didn't come formally until much, much later, nearly two years later in the process. Um, and, yeah, I, I, look, I... He was slumped in his chair. He looked he he, he looked tired. He looked exhausted, um, and I've got to say, he looked very similar to the demeanour that I saw him then, almost twelve hours later when he would, when he appeared in court. Because mm. they, we've we've talked to the photographers that got the shot of Mr. Edwards being taken out of that hatch building, that which was where this interview was. He would then have been taken to the holding cells at Perth Magistrates Court. Mm. 
brought up before us, um, and that's that's where officially, I suppose, this case really started. But um, yeah, I mean, once again, it was just it was just an extraordinary end to an extraordinary interview um, at the end of an extraordinary case. Yeah, has his physical appearance changed much from that video interview to today? Well, not really. Um, he was. Oh, well, that interview, he was just in casual clothes and uh, uh, this was the interview went right through, as you say, right through to 11, half past 11 at night or so. Um, but no, he he could almost, I mean, looking at him in court, it's almost like a cardboard cutout. It's just he doesn't show any emotion. It's To me, I've never seen anyone sit that long for so many months and not show anything at all, uh, expression-wise, no shaking of the head, nothing. And even during the interview, it was... His responses to did you murder these women, did you cause this rape, were about the same tone as when he was asked what sports he played. Mm. It was just a monotone. Damien, is it sometimes that people will save their emotional reactions for when they're not standing or sitting in the dock? I, I think I think sometimes um, it's a case that it's not that dissimilar to a, a, a batsman in cricket. You know, they 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 know that the etiquette. They walk off the field and then the change rooms are throwing the bat around. I mean, mm. it's, I think that it would be understandable that a person um, in in this person's situation would sit there and and remain fairly calm and then potentially, uh, you know, you can imagine yeah. in, in his cell, bed over the night time would be upset and potentially crying and um, there's any number of emotions that might be going on. But I I, I thought. That um, I thought that if I didn't expect anything else, you know, I, yep. when the, when this when this case started, I didn't expect that there would be a flurry of emotions from the accused person. Yeah, so that basically um, the ending of that interview pretty much wrapped up the state's case. But Tim, then Carmel Barbagallo dropped a bit of a bombshell. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there was a. Um, a- Few questions in cross examination, but um, obviously, Mr. Detective Marapodi's evidence pretty much spoke for itself, or mm. the screen spoke for him. Um, and then, uh, so that was the end of the case for the prosecution, which was a momentous moment yeah. in itself after 85 days. And then, um, uh, Justice Hall asked Miss Barbara Gallo um, a series of supposedly housekeeping questions, and one of those was, can you please read the email that you sent to the court regarding your emotional upset argument? Now, rewind about four and a half months. Yes. (laughs) This was basically the prosecution's theory as to motive. This was Mr Edwards was going through emotional turmoil at the very precise points in time that Jane, Kira and Sarah were murdered um, and and stretching that out a a little bit um, to um, Karakata as well. And we heard this evidence, and we've um, and we've pondered how the judge might uh, think of what the judge might think about this evidence. Um, um, but it turns out we're not going to have to um, worry about that evidence at all because Miss Barbagallo has taken the position, or the DPP team led by Miss Barbagallo has taken the position that they're not going to argue about that motive. They're not going to put that before the judge as a consideration, with a caveat in that certain sections of that evidence will be used in other ways. So, for instance, the fact that Mrs. Uh, Mr. Edwards' first wife moved out of the marital home around January 1996, they're not going to say now that 
emotionally provoked Mr. Edwards into going out and snatching Sarah off the street. But what they are going to say is that provided Mr. Edwards an opportunity to do that because he was then home alone. We've heard from other witnesses say he took that break up pretty hard, so he was drinking. His nighttime activities, we know those about the computers and and how he didn't sleep much um, after dark. So what the prosecution are going to do, and Ms. Barbara Gallo detailed this in court, by reading out this email, is to take certain parts of that background, if you like, and use it um, in other ways to show propensity, um, opportunity, um, and um, and do it that way, rather than ask the judge to draw a a, a line or a, or, a, or a bow that it all wraps together as the possible motive. Damien, is, is this a little bit of semantics in that, I mean... Um you know, we're not going to call it emotional upset, but still taking those key points and using them in, in another way. I, I think it, I think it is now. I think that it, it's uh, my view is always that it doesn't matter how many times someone says, "Well, oh, this this is not um, relevant," or it's been object, objected to, um, or a, a, ju- a judiciary says, "Well, we're not allowing it." In. It doesn't change the fact that it's before the court. It doesn't change the fact that it's something that's been raised, it's been discussed, even if it's been excluded, mm. um, or um, you know, it's before the court. But as we've said before, I think that with um, his honour in this case, I don't think there's anything for us for the people of Western Australia to fear. I think he's, if anyone, um, has has he's the one with the power to compartmentalise it and put it away. Yeah, and. Um, Justice Hall also said he was unlikely to take into account the homicide patterns evidence. So what did he say about that? Yeah, so that is the evidence that we heard earlier this week um, regarding the filters that were put on all the murders in Western Australia over the last 25, 30 years and then honing them down and honing them down. Um, And he said Justice Hall gave um, an initial ruling on that, I suppose you could call it, but it was pretty emphatic and I don't think it'll change much um, in, in the weeks, months to come. And he said, basically, he wasn't comfortable that that helped him decide whether one person was responsible for these murders or not. Um, he said it was... Uh, uh, I, mean, I, I found it quite interesting, and uh, um, whether he did or not, I'm not sure, but he said it wasn't helpful um, to him, in his view. Um, he invited Ms. Barbara Gallo to make more um, submissions on that as she wished to, um, and not straight away, so she might do I mean, in, in the weeks to come. Um, but his initial view was um, that he wouldn't be taking that into account either. Yeah, and Damien, you said that you couldn't see the relevance of that at all. Well, when we finished the podcast last, whenever it was that the last time I was fortunate enough to hang out with you people and do this, I <laughs> got off the podcast and I remember thinking to myself, I was trying to piece together if I was making the decision how it would help me, and and I, I in the end I put the thought away because I couldn't come to any conclusion. So. Um, it, it relieves. I, I take some relief from that on two fronts. One is that the person that I would consider one of the greatest thinking minds of, in law in WA thought something similar, and that I wasn't just <laughs> lost in what the information was because the information. Um, and Tim presented it very well. I mean, because obviously I wasn't there in court, but he presented it very well. So it wasn't like it was um, confusing in its presentation. It's just confusing in how you can draw anything 
conclusive from that. So, um, you know, my as I said the other day, I, I'm not sure that I could have found any way to u- utilise it if I was trying to um, draw a picture that would assist me to, to find that one person had committed these crimes. Do you wonder if this could um, in any way have a, a relevance for the case in relation to Sarah Spears? Absolutely, I do. I, I don't wonder. I, I'm... I, when I think about the case for Sarah, um, I, I'm often left wondering, and that's all I'm going to say about that. I'm, I'm, I'm often left a little bit without an answer. So, um, you know, given that, that, that this, in relation to the homicide patterns evidence, mm. um, does it tell us that, and I don't know the answer to this, I just pose the question, does it tell us that the prosecution felt the same way and they were that they're trying to find some other way to, to firm up what they're a bit concerned about. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's a question that went through my mind and I wonder whether Sarah, Sarah's case sits at the top of that pile. Yeah, and it's the same. I mean, I don't think any of us really know, but I guess, Tim, do you think that um, for Sarah's family this could be seen as a blow? Um, oh, possibly. Um, but, I mean, how big a blow... Could it be after you know losing a loved one? I mean, obviously, there are there are there there are three murder cases, three murder charges, and, yep. and three trials going on in one, um, essentially. And I think Damien's very fair in his assessment that the case um, concerning Sarah is where there is the least amount of direct evidence. You've got to, mm. you've got to say that um, mm. because. Obviously, there are no physical remains for a start. There were no sightings mm. um, on the night apart from these screams um, and the possible sighting of the car um, from the area of those screams. Um, so it will be uh, one of Miss Barbara Gallo's major tasks, I would suggest, mm. when she comes to do her closings in a month to draw all the um, straws together to make a cogent um, and the strongest possible argument she can that all three um, were um, committed by the one person. Yeah. Well, then um, came the moment that so many people had been waiting for. And Ali, this was when Justice Hall asked Mr. Edwards if he would like to give evidence at his own trial. And what was his response? His response was no. Uh, and he was asked about having evidence brought in he said absolutely no he was not going to give evidence and um, this threw me completely because everything happened so quick we thought it was going to go on for another yeah. week and all of a sudden I, I said to Tim did I hear right is that is that it now I mean it just seemed to come very very fast those last uh, closing <laughs> uh, remarks today and that was it that, after that. That's right. It yeah. was. It, it did happen very quickly because obviously what happened after that was uh, Mr. Jovic then delivered one of these most startling moments of the trial where he stood up and, and pretty much within a matter of minutes closed. Yeah, mm. yeah. So two things there. Mr. Edwards was actually asked personally by the judge. Now, Damien, does that usually happen? Does a judge actually ask the accused whether they want evidence, whether they're personally going to give evidence? I think um, it's important to note in, in terms of accused people giving evidence, Tim, that in the last couple of years there's been um, specifically one case where uh, there was some issues about counsel giving um, 
or let me put it this way, there were some issues about whether an accused gave evidence or not. And so the, the rules have tightened up on that. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think it's common for a judge or a magistrate to direct the question directly at an accused. But given the environment this trial's taken place in, it doesn't surprise me that he did that. Yeah, and that's exactly what he said. He said mm-hmm. to Mr. Jovic, given the import, the interest, the uh, the weight, however, the, the, the size, scale... Um, of the trial, I'm going to do that. I'm going to ask Mr. Edwards to stand up and I'm going to direct him personally or question him or ask him that um, question directly, which he did. And as Ali said, no, Your Honour, that was the answer. Now, that I've got to say that was the answer that most of us were anticipating. Yeah. Um, the way one very learned judge put to me today outside court was, um, you know, the, the, his position as it stands today is 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 as good as it's going to get and the possibility of taking the stand um you can only harm yourself um, because you're going to put yourself up against cross-examination against one of the very very senior barristers in the country um and you know uh, what good could come of that possibly so so, but that's just my that's my that's my take on it that's my opinion um and i don't know obviously anything that's gone on between mr edwards and his counsel but what we weren't expecting then was Mr. Jovich to stand up and say, yes, well, I'm going to present some evidence, place one sheet of temperatures from the Perth oh, no. suburb of Gosnells in 1996 <laughs> yeah. before the judge and then close his case. Yes. And I, <laughs> I, I would struggle to find anyone in that court, possibly Ms. Barbara Gallo would have had an idea. Um, but, <laughs> but anyone in the back of the court, we, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a little bit surreal having mm. spent 85 days, I think we're up to about page 10,200 of the transcripts mm. for it to end like that. Um, yeah. It was, yeah, it was a bit of an anticlimax, I've got to say, but a climax nonetheless. And we were trying to work out, well, what, why has that happened? What has happened there? Um, and we probably won't get that many answers, although... I've well, talked Tim, to, I had to ask you three times. Is that, <laughs> is that really is that, it? Yeah, is that it? Yes. What just happened there? Well, because I guess there's we a famous did. story about Bob Geldof <laughs> and the organizer of Live Aid, um, and uh, apparently when Live Aid was all over, he he walked out onto the stage at Wembley Stadium um, to just take it all one one it all in after this whirlwind of of, of Live Aid, and apparently there was one gentleman still leaning over the barrier and just shouted up to. Bob Geldof, is that it? <laughs> At the end of Live Aid, and Bob Geldof actually made uh, um, title, that was his title of his autobiography, and that's what it, it felt a little bit like yeah. that today. Um, at the end of the Lord Mayor's parade, but um, I've talked. We talked a lot about fibre evidence, and I've yeah. and I've mentioned the defence fibre expert a lot, yes, um, because that's one of the main bits of the defence. I suppose we were anticipating, and, and Tim, and he didn't come. He didn't come today. <laughs> Now, my understanding is that that report that did that that was tendered and was was we waited for, and the prosecution was given just before Christmas, and the judge, and there was this, that, and that, you know, back and forth about it. My understanding is that that report perhaps, perhaps wasn't as uh, helpful to the defence case as they'd hoped it would be, um, and so they've decided to not put it before the court um, because if it was, then. Obviously, the, def- the prosecution have the right to call that expert and question him on it. And 
it might not be to their advantage. Correct. Yeah. Um, so that was my understanding. <laughs> um, and so there we were. We were, and we, it was yeah. The the uh, then after the nightclub, the nights the lights came on. The balloons sort of mm. fell away, and there we were outside, um, um, wondering, wondering what we're going to do for the next four weeks. <laughs> Damien, can you make any sense of this uh, to to in a trial like this for the defence not to call a single witness? Well, I think. Um, what Tim's alluded to before that it was was said to him by um, somebody outside the court was that it it might might simply be the view that the defence are of the view that this is the position we're in at the moment is as good as it's going to get. Now that sounds like a that sounds like a relatively conservative position, but you can actually look at it from the other way as well because the reason we're in the best position we could ever get is because the prosecution haven't done what they should have done. Uh, you just see what I mean? You can look at it. There's two different ways to look at that. Um, it, it could be the case that this, you can't make it any better, or it could be the case that um, the defence are of the view that the prosecution haven't proved beyond a reasonable doubt. And I certainly wouldn't allude to either of those because I have no idea. But I, I, I think that um, the fact that um, nothing's been, no evidence has been offered except the temperatures for the city of Gosnells. Um, <laughs> which is something I should say should be on trial in itself, um, <laughs> that is, is that if, I mean, how confident must you be to end your case like that? You must be mm. terribly confident. And I'm not talking about confident, confidence that you will be acquitted, but confidence that the position you are in at the moment is the best position you can be in. Um, you know, and, yeah. and, and it, if you think about it, all those discussions that we've had when I've um, joined you guys on the, in the conversation podcast. Uh, we've talked about how there's a there's sometimes a, a very important element of making sure that you protect your interests against appeal. And when I say your interests, you know, like if you're a lawyer, the party you're acting for, and if you're the judge, your decision or whatever it is. How confident must the defence be in their position? Not that necessarily he'll be acquitted, but their position in what they think, yeah. where they think they're at, that they're They've closed their case that way. That's that's certainly one way to look at it. Yeah, and it also goes to what we've tried to stress over the course of the trial is that the defence don't have to prove anything. Mm. They can they just put the prosecution to proof. They stand up and say, right, okay, just give us what you've got, um, and and then you know let the let the let, let, let the judge make the decision. And so a lot of Mr. Jovic's work has obviously been done in in, in cross examining key witnesses and trying to cast out on key parts of the evidence, DNA and, and fibres being sort of two of those major planks. Well, Tim, I think it's important to, for, for people to recognise as well that just because the defence didn't really run a case, so to speak, I mean, it doesn't mean that the defence didn't prepare a case. Oh, so there would have been, you know, a bucket load of work done preparing the case because you have to prepare the case to have a look at it to see whether you should run it. And so, you know... You don't know what the prosecution's position is going to be until their case finishes. I mean, you might have an idea, but anything could happen along that journey. So um, you need, when you're preparing for defence, you need to prepare it as if you were going to run it, you know, in its full extent. Um, and, and there's a lot of work that goes that goes into that. And just in saying that, a thought that came to my mind, um, Nat and Ali, is that if a lot of listeners will be thinking to themselves, this is just my thought. I think a lot of listeners will be saying to themselves, well, if you were innocent, 
surely you would get into the box and you would tell the judge you're innocent. And, and it's a very, very difficult concept to, to move around. But in my experience, there are so many things that can happen to you in cross-examination mm. that if even when I'm convinced that one of my clients is innocent and I'm convinced that they can tell a good story, I'm always extremely mindful of what can happen in cross-examination. So I think that it would be, um, it would be dangerous for... I mean, obviously, obviously, listeners have got to form their own views as every day goes by. But Jamie and I've always that I, thought that too. But this was—I think this was a jury trial that definitely would have held. But a judge always emphasises you cannot take anything into whether the defendant agrees to give evidence or not. They really emphasise that. But I've always thought that a juror. Uh, the common man or woman would think, well, if that was me and I was innocent, I'd be getting up there and yelling their head off. And I think, I wonder too if that's why the uh, judge asked the question direct to um, Bradley Edwards about whether he's giving evidence because you often hear defendants say, oh, my, my lawyer told me not to and mm. da 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 mm. da. So I'm just thinking I think about that's, whether that's. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's precisely why um, he wanted there to be absolutely no doubt in yes. anyone's mind that he'd given Mr. Edwards the clearest. Um, instructions and an opportunity to do that. Um, he, he gave Mr. Jovic the break to explain that he was going to do that to Mr. Edwards. And as David said, there's a there's been a high profile case murder case here just rec- that's just wrapped up in the appeal court recently, and that was the exact um, appealed argument that the um, the lady that was um, convicted of that murder basically said, "Well, I was." Oh, I thought I was going to give evidence. Um, my lawyer didn't instruct me properly, um, and that's where the confusion um, lay. So um, again, um, Justice Hall just um, doing everything he possibly can to make sure everything is pos- done to you know to, to the, the uh, to letter the letter uh, of the law. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Ali, did anyone have anything to say to the TV cameras outside court today when it adjourned? No, because they do realise, of course, we're still in the middle of it. I mean, they've got this closing submission, so. Uh, but they were asked if they wanted to say anything. No one said anything at all. Um, they just politely said, no, we can't comment. Yes. And yeah, As expected. Tim, what happens next? So, um, again, Justice Hall, full of planning, full of plans. Um, so he's given both sides four weeks to come up with their um, written closing submissions. So that is the submissions that will be handed up to Justice Hall in written form, um, pulling together both sides of the argument. And then... Um, uh, both sides will then be given the chance to talk to those or make oral arguments that just stress and emphasise the main points of those written submissions. Um, so that will uh, begin on June the 8th, go for a few days, um, and then the, the the trial will officially be um, over and the judge will go away to um, think about his verdict and most importantly do um, his written reasons for coming to that verdict. Um, written reasons are only given in judge-alone trials. They're hugely um, sought after, particularly in big trials, because not only is it the you know the outcome, but it's also the legal thinking behind that outcome. Um, so not only will um, will us scummy media types be reading it from cover to cover, but I'm pretty mm. sure every lawyer and jurist and, <laughs> and judge in the country will also be um, giving it a, 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 a good bash as well. And the people who are following this case so very closely. So as Tim mentioned, um, that's four weeks for the adjournment, which means we will come back on the 8th of June 
which is coincidentally the day of Jane Rimmer's disappearance. That is the day prosecution will begin its closing submission. So thank you, everyone, Tim, Ali, Damien, Brendan, and all the guests we've had on the podcast so far. It has been a marathon six months. And thank you for your company during that time. Keep an eye out for bonus episodes during our four-week adjournment. You can keep in touch with us at Podcast at wanews.com.au and we will endeavour to get back to you. Until then, that wraps up week 21. We'll be back with you in four weeks' time for day 86 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast is hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. And if local news delivered differently appeals to you, tune in to WA's newest morning show, The West Live with Jenna Clark. It's talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.